Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 53 of our basketball Q&A pro. You're good to go? Folks, I'm good. Are you? Very good. Very good. Lots to talk about. Perfect. Anyone got a question, feel free to jump in the queue and fire away. Uh, first one. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, g'day, guys. Um, certainly glad the Ben Simmons uh, drama's over. Um, I'm sure you, you guys probably are as well. Um, I've got a couple of questions for you this week. So um, probably my first one is how do you feel, I mean, both of you feel about players signing, you know, long-term deals for max, say max, a max contract, for example, but then not seeing it through. So, you know, let's say they sign a four or five-year deal, um, but then sort of two years in, they sort of say, nah, I'm, I'm sort of done with this, I'm out of here. Do you sort of sympathise with the player a bit when they, you know, you kind of think, okay, well, they were promised to be bringing in players to bring them a championship or, you know, um, the direction we told them they were going or do you sort of more think around the way, well, sorry, you signed a five-year deal, like deal with it? That's my first question. And second question is, um, do you think in today's game, um, triple doubles, like getting a triple double has the same significance or do you think, because it seems to be a lot easier in today's game for a player to get a triple double or do you think it really depends on the player? Um, I suppose someone like, you know, Westbrook, for example, if he doesn't get a triple double, it's, you know, it's kind of a, you know, like it's it's almost it's almost more common for him to get a triple-double than not, but then there's other players where it seems quite a big thing. Um, I'd just be interested to know both your thoughts on that. Yeah, no worries. Um, but we'll, let's just keep it to one question, and then if you want to ask that second one, um, just join the queue again, just out of respect to everyone else that joins. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so definitely. we'll do the long-term deal one um, and get rolling on that. So, yeah, thanks for your question, question Chris. So, look, it's, it's tough, man. Um, I think... Um, I'm in the in the pact of at least if you've signed a long term contract, um, you should at least see out the first couple of years, which was generally the unwritten rule pro back in the day. It was like you'd give it probably three out of the five before you started getting antsy about wanting to be moved if things weren't going well. Um, but what we're seeing today is like you said, the Ben Simmons one is a prime example of you've signed a five year deal and, and within the first year you want out. That's that's real dangerous territory. Um, we've spoken about it at length on the pod. I think what we're going to see, this is going to come up in the next CBA. There'll be no doubt in my mind, and I've got on the run sheet for when we do our pod here in about 30 minutes, is that, that the owners and the, and, and the front office and the NBA execs, this is not a good thing. It's not a good thing for the game. Um, and look, there are circumstances where, you know, franchises and players go separate ways and it's respectable and, and whatnot but first year I'm not I'm not for that um, you look at the James Harden side of things where I think the way James has structured his contracts um, to an extent and his agent should be commended because he's used the loopholes of, of being able to do those two-year deals he has all the leverage every single time he's still under contract because for those that aren't familiar, all he said was, I want to get traded. I only want to go to Philly. And his deal expires at the end of this season. So if someone else comes in, a la, you know, Toronto Raptors did with Kawhi, they took that risk, but they've only got, you know, they had at least had Kawhi for the whole season. Someone trading for James now would have him for 30, 40 more games. And then he's on record as saying, I'm going to Philly. I'm going to sign there. I'm not signing with you in free agency. So then it hinders where he can be traded, but all the power then is still with the player. And you want players to have power to an extent, but if you're signing contracts, you want some teams to at least receive some compensation. So I'm not a huge fan of it. I think it's going to change. I think it has to. There's got to be some something that comes in because otherwise 
you're at risk of the, the contracts aren't worth the paper they're written on. If you can sign a five-year deal and get out of it within a year, don't even have five-year deals. Just have year-to-year deals for everyone in the league. Essentially, that's what that's what you're doing now. I know that's that's being a bit extreme, and it's probably not going to be feasible for your, your middle class and your mid-T players and your low-T players. But for your max guys, that's essentially what's happening right now. Is you know most of those guys are holding teams to ransom, and I thought the Simmons one was going to be a line in the sand moment where they were going to say, you know what, like we're going to let you sit, and I, and I wasn't not like I was cheering for it, but I I, I honestly, if I'm being honest, I thought it wouldn't have been the worst thing for the game because then it sets a precedent. Dude, you've signed a five-year deal. Figure it out. And fortunately, you know, the cool heads prevailed. They both got on with life. They've made the trade now. And, and and you know, obviously on the, on the other side of that, you don't want Joel Embiid to not be able to compete for a championship with another superstar playing next to him. So there's a lot of different things, pro, but I think it's, I think back when I, you know, first came in the league, a lot of guys that signed five-year deals, um, they'd sign them knowing the franchise wasn't in great shape, but they'd, they'd at least give it the first three or four years before they before they started um, rattling their tins to get out, pro. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on it. I mean, obviously you would want everybody to sort of honor what they have, like the, the, the team honor the contract as far as trying to put as many pieces together around the player and then the player playing out the contract the best of their of their ability. Rick Carlisle taught me something when I was working for him. He said something that was really smart. He said, look, it's all about, I think I was going to my own negotiation and contract and he goes, Mike, it's all about leverage. And I think that's really true. Like whoever has the leverage in, this, in each situation is going to prevail. Philly had a lot, all the leverage in the Simmons deal, all the leverage because they're still winning decently. They need enough, they they needed to make a deal, but they could have afforded just to sit on it. Plus, you had uh, a GM that was gonna that was gonna like die on his sword as far as getting a James Harden deal done. So he was like I said last week, he wasn't gonna trade for anybody. Um, so like. In this situation, they had the leverage. But most situations, like James Harden and LeBron and most of his situations, they've got all the leverage. You know, when they sign the deal, they could just sit. And I think the leverage is more not about sitting, but trading. Like this, And I'll talk about it in the pod. Like, that's the biggest problem is these, te- these players now, the – the sort of blueprint is if you're a superstar, top 10, top 12 player, put it through your agency like James Harden did. Is like, look, if you if you trade for me, I'm not gonna, I, I'm, you know, I'm not gonna really, you know, you might, you're not gonna get my best effort. I'm not gonna resign with you, and quote unquote, I'll probably play 30 games a year for you until you make a trade and you get me out of town. So it limits, like, it limits what you can do. So this trade was sort of forced, and he had all the leverage. So I think in each situation, it, it depends on who's who has the leverage. I don't like it, but there's really nothing, Vogues, you can do. There's nothing you can do. Yeah, you could say, okay, if the guy demands the trade, you could find him big-time money and all this stuff. But, like, how are you really going to track it? Like, who's to blame who are you going to find? It, it, it's not always the player. Sometimes and that's it can exactly be the team. it, bro. You hit it on the head. That's what I was going to say. I mean, it's it's not always, sometimes teams, you know, new coach comes in and they've signed a guy to a max deal two years before and then the, the franchise is going into rebuild, a la OKC, San Antonio are doing right now. And they've got a max slot and they're like, we're not going to play you, John Wall, right? So it does go both ways. But I just, I agree with you to an extent, but I think the one year, Look, asking for a trade after signing an extension 
or, 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 or a long-term deal within the first year or two, I think is not right. And I think, you know, maybe they, they, they do a percentage where they say, all right, you want out this early up before year three, you eat, 20, you eat 10% of your contract goes back to the team that, that you signed it with. Or so, I don't know. There's some, I, I can guarantee you, and I just saw Mark Stein on his Substack wrote about it, that the, the league's not happy about it, the executives aren't happy about it, and the owners aren't happy about it. So when those three those three pools of people aren't unhappy, when the CBA comes up, there's going to be something they put in. But yeah, to an extent, I'm probably on, on par with you. It's like, what, what else are you going to do really, right? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they come up with. I'm sure they'll come up with something, but yeah, it's it's not a... It's a tough thing, and it's it's a it's a black it's a black eye on this on the league. To be honest with you, because it's getting to be a joke. It's getting these things are getting to be a joke. It really started with like Carmelo Anthony and Darren Williams back in like oh whatever like oh six when they forced their way out of town. It started there, like when when this whole drama of not re-signing a year in advance and then trades and forcing out of town. Like it started there, and then it, then LeBron, Carmel, you know, LeBron and all these other guys forced their way out of town on teams. But it's it's really a black mark to the league, and they got to really start to try to deal with it the best they can because I think people are getting a little bit fed up with it. Yeah, it's just hard to support. We know we know the leagues, you know, and pro sports have gone more towards supporting player X or player Y, and you know, a lot of people follow LeBron wherever he goes, or KD or Steph or whatever it is that hasn't left yet. But you get my point. Um, but it's it's hard to be an all in supporter of a team when things like this happen, like. You know, you are OKC or you are Denver. You tr- you, you draft a, a stud. Your front office gets it right. You get Carmelo. You get KD. You get whoever, right? And then it's just like you just know. You just know it's a matter of time. Like you know, I'm buying my kid this jersey, but this guy's probably going to be gone in three or four years to a bigger market, or you know, Donovan Mitchell to a to a more star-studded market, and that kind of sucks a little bit, right? Because there's always that little bit of sour taste in your mouth when you're thinking about it, and I think that's what. That's what needs to change, right? It just needs to be, um, you know, I think it's a balance. You still want to support stars, but also, you know, you want people to be able to support their team and know that a guy's going to be there long term. And we just we just don't see that enough in, in the NBA now. And it's it's really leveraged. And I'm, you know, I'm a former player saying this, right? It's, it's, it's leveraged way too far in the player's favor. Um, I think there needs to be a balance for you to continue to have a feasible business and, and a great product. You can't just have... Um, players continuously get what they want. You know, there has to be a little bit of pushback. And when's the last time we've heard, you know, maybe John Wall right now, but when's the last time we've heard, you know, a high percentage of teams push back on a trade request or a demand or a player that wasn't unhappy and win? You ever rarely hear it these days, bro. Like it always, it always ends up the player gets what they want or close to what they want, right? Yeah, and they do. And I think with John Wall, I think it was a sort of a situation where they had all these young guys and they weren't going to play him anyway. And his contracts, not I don't think any real contract is untradeable. I think the league has proven that the last three or four years, like almost every deal got you know traded that we we said it could never be traded. But um, yeah, you very rarely see the team have you know all the juice in, in in sort of negotiating with the player as far as sitting them when when the players you know quote unquote wants out of a situation. It's, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon, actually. Yeah, it'll be fun to watch. I'll see what they're going to do with the next CBA. So watch that interest with interest and, and see what direction they go. But anyone else got a question, feel free to join the queue. Steve, fire away, man. Hey, fellas. Uh, thanks for taking my call. No worries. Um, uh, Andrew, I'm a big fan from uh, your days with the Warriors. And I'm wondering, uh, 
with the Warriors coming off two back-to-back losses with against teams that had pretty good big men, and with um, Draymond still, you know, uh, not coming back anytime in the foreseeable future, do you think? Were you surprised the Warriors didn't go for a big man uh, before the trading deadline? And do you think that they have enough to make a serious deep run uh, in the finals this year? Yeah, thanks for your question. That's a, that's a great question because we know that you know bigs aren't a uh, you know integral big minute part of of, of what Steve Kerr does. Um, but you do need someone in there, you know, twenty twenty five minutes just for some rim protection, um, his physicality. You know, if you happen to run into Jokic or the finals with Embiid or even Giannis to an extent, you want some bigger bodies at the rim. Um, so I think it's a valid point. I think they thought, you know, I think Wiseman's now pro. What's the latest on Wiseman? Is he is he done for the year? Is that what I read? It's not great. It's not looking great for him, but I haven't heard it's close. that that he's got. Yeah, it's close to the year. So yeah, I think they were banking close. on Wiseman being back as to why they didn't make a move. But I would really look at, keep your eye on the buyout market. Um, I, I think that will be an opportunity. I know we flagged, uh, I think, who did we say? DeAndre Jordan, maybe, um, would be a decent fit for him. I mean, he can run. He's athletic. He's a good lob guy. I mean, Draymond loves playing with lob guys at the five spot, so he could be a candidate if he gets bought out. So I'd look towards the buyout market. I think you're right. They do need another body. Um, Bielitz is not that big physical five that they need. And But, you know, for the most part, the Warriors will play and make you match to them. So I think that's what probably they're banking on. But yeah, you, you run into you run into a legit seven footer that can score and do everything like Jokic or Embiid, then they might have a bit of a bit of uh, trouble with that. So they will I think they will find someone around that deadline and, and look there first, second in the in the West right now with Phoenix. Um, so I think there'll be a lot of candidates that would love to go there, love to go and play with Steph, potentially compete for a championship. Um, and I don't think Phoenix is a competitor for any bigs really because they've got they've got a, a decent mix of, uh, of bigs there already. So with Javel and, and DeAndre, so I doubt they'd, they'd go to the buyout market competing with Golden State unless it becomes one of those we're going to sign him just so you can't type deals, which we do see sometimes with um, teams that will potentially end up in the, in the conference finals against each other. So I think it's a valid point. They need something there. Um, it's not going to be a guy that comes in and plays – you know, 25, 30, I think it's a 10 or 15 minute spot. Um, maybe you run into someone in the playoffs where you need to play that big, probably a little bit more for some physicality. But I, I assume their front office is aware of it and they're probably, probably if I was a gambling man, I'd say they're already circling a couple of names that, are, that that agents have already said, we're trying to get this guy bought out and they've probably got some guys ready to go if I was if I was to gamble. So we'll watch that space pro. I don't know, I don't know what your thoughts are on it. I don't think they had any chips to play for a major trade for a big guy or even a mid-level big guy. Um, I think that just, like you said, I think it's going to wait. I don't think they do a lot with bigs anyway. And I think it's going to wait on it and, and, and see if there's a DeAndre Jordan, you know, at the trade, you know, at the, uh, buyout market. So we'll see. Agree. I'll right, we'll go to our next one. Charlie. Yeah. Hey guys. Um, I was just, um, wanting to ask you to a question. Um, who's some players that you've played with have got like a bad rap from say the media teammates or fans or whatever, and you played with them and they'll look like, like, a bit of a um, hard head, you know, yeah, around. Who's people like that? So the question was around some guys that have a bad rap that uh, aren't, aren't all that. Um, I've I've played with many. Look, one one guy that as a day to day, like Demarcus Cousins, um, was a guy I played with at Golden State. And look, he can be demonstrative at times, and 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 he's passionate and fiery. But like in the day to day locker room, I thought he'd be. 
tough to deal with um, just because we got into it a lot when we played, um, all that kind of stuff. But he was actually great sense of humor, fun to be around. The guys loved him. Um, but he was just one of those guys that, that got, you know, white line fever and would just do some crazy stuff when he was on the court or on, in the practice gym. So um, that was one guy for me. Um, who else do we have? I mean, look, Draymond gets a bit of a hard knock sometimes um, just because he's so passionate and fiery and, and he was one of the best teammates I've had as far as, you know, leaving it all out there for you and always having your back. So he'd be another one that sometimes by the media gets a bad rap. Um KD, look, KD has uh, – he goes back and forth with people on social media and whatnot, so he gets a little bit of a bad rap for that because people don't like that um, for whatever reason. They don't like you defending yourself when people are giving you shit, but um, he was pretty quiet for the most part and soft-spoken. So, uh, you know, they're three guys that behind the scenes that I I didn't – I thought I'd have a different experience with, if that makes sense. Um, but, I mean, there's countless examples, Pro. You, you would have had – truckloads coming through Dallas, especially as, as much as it was a, a revolving door it was when you were there. Yeah, I would say JaVel McGee, probably the biggest one. Um, JaVel McGee and Rondo, of course, but, you know, Rondo sort of had some instances where, you know, people won't really fail for him too much. But JaVel McGee, I would say definitely a guy that wasn't a problem at all. A little spacey, a little different. I like him. Um, but whatever you told him that to do, he did on a daily basis. Like you, you be here at eight thirty. He'll be there at eight thirty. He'll work. He'll work on whatever you ask to do. Now, in games, he can get a little out of control when you know when he tries to make plays on his own. And I would say another one is Nerlens Noel. Same thing. I think Nerlens is the type of guy that like if if you don't tell him anything and he just does it on his own, he probably won't work as hard or be as diligent. But if you tell him exactly what you expect out of him, he did exactly what we all asked with him in, in Dallas. So I, I would say those two guys for sure. And uh, they got really bad raps, especially Javel. I think Javel's a great guy to deal with. I think a lot of people are – you know how that is, Bogues. A lot of coaches, when they get a guy that has a bad rap, sometimes they treat him differently and they don't really give him a benefit of the doubt. And then it ends up being a bad match. But I think if you just sort of treat everybody into – you know. Let them, you know, have their back until they give you a reason not to. I think that that's probably the best, probably advice I would give to anybody acquiring a player like that. You know, and that's a and Javale's a prime example. Like he, he's his body, athleticism, length. That's a, a huge asset, and it just felt like in Washington he was around. He wasn't around the best teammates. Let's be honest, the best veterans at times through that 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 whole organization when he was a young fella, which can have a bad effect on on how you think the NBA is and what you think the norm is. I think it, sometimes for guys like that, it's like you said, it's a matter of a coach pulling him aside and saying, hey, I know you want to get in your bag and 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 through all the crowd every now and then and, and you, you love, but I need you to do X, Y, and Z. And then as a coach, you got to be like, hey, like in your own head, I'll give him one of those stupid play the game. Like I might say, if you're doing all these other things for me, Hey, like I might call a play for you where you can ISO from the top of the key and try to put it behind your back and like shoot a running hook if, you know, maybe once a game, right? But then if it becomes more than that, you have a chat to him. But I think that communication has gone too from some coaches. And I think he came into a system where Gilbert was there. They were kind of coming out of that 
you know, potentially a conference finals team against Cleveland to where are we going, starting to have aging veterans in Brendan Haywood and and um, Gilbert and Antoine Jameson and Deshaun Stevenson. They had a bunch of guys and it was quite – they were in the transition and then it all started to fall apart and Javel found, found minutes in a system that really didn't have too much discipline and it, it kind of hurt him a little bit because he did some crazy things. But I think you're totally right. I think no one really invested time in him as a young fella back then. I mean, um, but that that level of – of, of, of athleticism and body and length, you know, that's an asset for most teams if coached properly. And I think sometimes we, we scapegoat the athlete um, like Javel, but I think some of that blame is on his, on his um, coaches in his first couple of years, because, you know, he's, he's, he's a very good rim protector. He can run the floor, the best of them. And in his prime, he was tough, but like you said, in his prime, he would do one or two stupid things, get benched, and then it set him back three or four games till he found his confidence again. So I totally agree. I think um, Javel's a, a really good example, and no one's Noel. Oh, turning down that contract still, he's got to be. He's yeah, got to be. It, he's got to be waking up things. in a cold sweat. <laughs> that's things. That's things for sure. That definitely things. But yeah, I agree. The Javel thing too, Bogues. I think I don't think he was ready to listen when he was in Washington either. I think like coming in as a high draft pick, one of the top players coming out of his draft. Yeah, he was a little spacey as it is. Probably had everybody around him telling him he was going to be the next, you know, you know, the next like Tim Duncan or whatever. And he probably, I don't think he was ready to listen. I think the best thing sometimes for a player to do is fail and to fail out of a situation, get traded a couple of times, and then be in a situation where they don't need to play you. I think that's what he got in Dallas a little bit. And then when he went to, you know, and then he went when he went to the Lakers or Golden State and places like that, and now Phoenix. Well, he built up back. He built back his reputation, his credit rating. You know, as I like to say, and now he's fine. But I think it takes sometimes failing and the league telling you, "Look, we don't need you to move on. We're good." But if you don't do what we say, like sort of what Demarcus Cousins is dealing with now. That's good for a player sometimes, where you get knocked down a couple of uh, pegs, and then now you got to work for your spot and you got to earn it, and you have to have sort of a different approach and different attitude the way you look at it. So that's just sort of how I see it. And I think, like I said, I think the veterans on that team, yeah, you, you might be yes. right. Where Javel came into a system thinking he was the man, that's where you need good veterans. Like, hey, young fella, no, you were a top ten pick or whatever, but we we've got proven veterans, the stars in this team. We need you. Block us three shots, get us 10 rebounds. We'll give you a couple of little bunnies you can dunk, but don't focus on trying to get in your bag right now. You'll get you'll get to that. You're in year one. That's where you need good veterans to instill that every day. Hey, keep coming to work, keep work on your skills, but right now we don't need you to do that. And that's that's the hardest thing to hear sometimes, especially if you're a top 10 pick going to a playoff team can can actually hinder you. Um, where I always argue a top 10 pick going to a shitty team is probably a better better for them individually because you know they're going to play through their mistakes, a la Josh Giddy, a la these guys that are, are playing no matter what. Whereas, you know, arguably we have this conversation, Josh Giddy's with the Warriors right now. Is it, well, how many minutes is he playing? Um, and this is no 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 shot at Josh Giddy. I'm just saying you're playing behind Steph. You pl- Clay's back from injury now, and Wiggins is having an all star year. Like, there's do the math. There's, so if he goes to that system, all of a sudden the ball's not in his hands as much. All of a sudden he's probably off off the ball a little bit with Steph handling. They throw it to him, and he has to knock down that wide open three. Things change. Pressure changes. He's not in a feel. He's not in a rhythm. Whereas OKC, hey hey hey, young fellow, like. You're 0 for 5, we don't care. Shoot the 6-1, you know, get in the paint attack. So 
all these things, you can be a victim of circumstance in the NBA and in pro sports in general. And I think JaVale McGee was was definitely a prime example of that. And I think, yeah, he was definitely a part, a part of the blame as well. So next one, we'll move on to Dan. Yeah, Lauren Jackson making a comeback. What's your thoughts, folks? Oh, I think it's interesting. Um, what is she, 40, 40, 41? Yeah, she's 40, mm. uh, going on 41. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm 37 and I can, yeah, I, I've, some days I struggle to, you know, <laughs> get out of bed. Um, no, nah, I'm, I'm all right. But I think it's going to be interesting. I think it's going to be tough. Um, she's had an injury history also. So it wasn't like she was the most healthiest when she went into retirement. Um, had a baby as well, which can, you know, put a, a bit of a strain on the body. Um yeah, I think it's I think it's a great story, and it's one of our best basketball female basketballs that have that have ever you know it is our best female basketball in Australian history, and potentially one of the best in the world ever. Um, but man, forty forty one, oh, you know that's that's tough. Um, you, you're gonna have, you know, I think it's it's a case of your brain. Like even even for me, there's days I wake up, go to the park with my with my kids or whatever, and I'm like, oh, maybe I could squeeze out another year or two. It's your, it's your mind telling you you're good, but it's like. Five days into that training camp, or five days into that that road, you know, a, a road trip with two games and no sleep and blah blah blah, and you're like, why did I do this? And I know that's where your your mind can can really play tricks on you. So I, I'm, I support her and hope she kills it, but yeah, it's gonna be tough. She's been using medicinal marijuana as pain pain relief legally. Yeah, which hmm. a, a lot of athletes are doing. It's um, an interesting yeah thought of it. Yeah, a lot of athletes are doing it. You can do it um, with oils as well, and there's creams, and there's all kinds of different things. I've, I've, I tried a bit of the oil for rubbing on my leg uh, when I broke my leg, um, and I can say that now because I was uncontracted and I technically wasn't in the protocol to be drug tested. So even if it absorbed in my skin and I was positive, unlucky they didn't catch me. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you can do that, but what one thing marijuana is not going to do is make you younger. <laughs> so, you know, she's got she's up there in age. Yeah, uh, just another question um, for co- for pro. Mm-hmm. Um, in Victoria, they've thrown <laughs> in the under in the rep ball no zone. Uh, you're not allowed to play zone defense anymore in rep junior basketball in Victoria. Is that a common? Uh, is that a thing that's in America or not? Not a common. So thing, pro rep think? is rep is junior, so it's basically. I think it's is it is it fourteen sixteens under? Or is it twelve? Well, it's from twelve under twelves upwards in rep ball, but in the new in club ball zones allowed. It, here's my thought: in the United States, they there is no zone while in most leagues, meaning you could play it four quarters. And in most of these coaches, that you know that are more, some of the laziest people I've ever seen would play it seven quarters if they could, <laughs> just because if they don't want to teach it. I think it should be outlawed. I think it. It. it sh- I think. I think it should be outlawed. I, if I was running a developmental league, I would allow it one quarter a game. All right, I would allow it. If you want to play it, you could play it for one quarter. But I think that kids learn, need to learn how to play against man to man. And I think that because it's mostly played now in college in the NBA, you see some zone, no doubt about it. I think in high school, I do think that. Uh, and, and the juniors, I'm sorry, the younger, I think you should be playing mostly man-to-man. I think it's too lazy. I think you just sit back in a 2-3 or whatever, and it's just, like, not active. You know, it's it just not – I don't think it's good for the game. I can't speak on the game. I'm not I'm not the president of everything. But I just think that it's bad for the game when all you see is 
these zones, 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 zones. I just think it's a very lazy way to coach. And I think it's a very, um, I, I don't think it's teaching the kids anything. And then 90% of the schools probably in high school, when these kids get up in the United States, play man to man on one level or another. And now they're behind the eight ball. I think, I think seeing both is good. I would allow it one quarter a game, but I'm not crazy about it. I would, I would, I would outlaw the fucking thing to be honest with you. Yeah, it's tough. I think it, at the learning stages and like, you know, I think it definitely shouldn't be allowed um, and the developmental stages, but I think there's that, it's that tough conversation of then they get to the pros or college or the elite level um, that you're going to see zone. And if you've never played against it, um, you know, we, we taught it, we got taught it a lot, uh, but that was the elite level, right? So, elite level of juniors. So, AIS, we did a lot of zone offense and stuff like that because we'd see it a lot in international ball, but it comes back to the conversation of this with with at least in Australia. I don't know what it's like in um in well, I don't know what it's like in, in high school, but I don't know what it's like in junior varsity or what the mindset is in, in junior junior high and even even lower lower weekend ball for young kids in, in the US. But it, it's these junior coaches that value winning over development. They really shit me. Um, it really pisses me off. And you know, you see this with numerous players. It's like you've got some guy coaching the under fourteen first team in club X or whatever it is. And he wins a championship for his under 14s and he's got this trophy and he's carrying it around like he's Phil Jackson. And you're like, look, it's, it's, you want to instill winning. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you don't want to instill, you want to instill winners and, and winning habits, but that coach will be much better. Well known if he developed an NBA player, period. People will know who he is for the rest of his life. People, mm. you know, are not going to give a shit that he has under 14s trophy from 1999. Like it's just, mm. and it just gets me every single time because, you know, you've got kids that, that are, you know, let's say under 14s and you see this big tall kid that's long and just hasn't put it together, but you can see this kid's going to be seven foot or he's going to be, he's got the athleticism, he just doesn't have the ball skills yet or whatever. And then you've got the kid that's fully grown at 12 years old, hairy legs, like Adam's apple, like, you know, bench pressing 200 pounds and he's he's the man on their team because he's stronger, quicker, he's, he's, he's fully matured, right? And these coaches, nine times out of 10, will put that kid over the big kid and cut the other big kid because, oh, you're not ready yet. It's like, well, how about you make him ready? How about you put him in the team even as your, as your 9, 10, 11, 12 guy, develop him. That guy goes to the NBA and your, your coach's name is Joe Blow. Everyone's going to talk about Joe Blow's development and, and he was great for this kid. But like I said, they're not going to care about your little trophy. And, and that's that's a big, big problem in Australia. It's starting to get a little bit better, but you still see it, all these clubs, all these associations, it's all political. It's it's this one, this one coaches this one's son and that one knows this one. That's why he's a coach or he won the championship and he's the best. We, we always win with this guy. It's like, well, my first question is who have you developed? Who's your young guys? Give me some names. And that's what shits me with junior basketball. I think it, it really, I think development's, Winning, winning, winnings first, and with development, right? And then number two, number three, it's you want to try and put together systems and whatever so you can compete and, and instill winning habits. But I think the development side of things, you know, because you see these kids that, like I said, that 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 fully grown kid at twelve years old that's more mature. You fast forward three years, no one's no one no one knows where he is. He's like working in a mine or working in a where you know, or he's got a full time job or he's getting a PhD. Nothing to do with his sport. But that that big kid might have quit the game because he got frustrated with the system. Like, oh, you know, no one no one no one wants to invest time in me, so I'll just quit. And then you like 
you know, you see this 19, 19 year old seven foot one and you're like, Hey man, like, why didn't you, <laughs> why didn't you take up basketball or oh, I did, but you know, I just had a rough go at it. So I just kind of gave it away. And you're just like, I hated hearing those stories just because you can't, unfortunately in basketball, you can't teach height, athleticism and, and length pros. So I don't know if it's similar in the US. Yeah. Most of the coaches that I see at the 14 and under level in the US would, would probably coach the 92 dream team to a 500 record. You know, and they just they they don't know how to teach. They don't. They know how they know how to throw out all these tricky plays and these like junk zones and things like that. And they like you said, they want to win. But like as far as teaching fundamentals, teaching defensive stance, teaching how to shoot the ball, teaching how to move without the ball, teaching, you know, the individual skills that these kids need and the team skills that these kids need, there's a really big well in that in this country and that's you know and that's the problem like and that's why basketball iq is at an all-time low you you know not only you know some of the youth coaches but also the trainers that work with youth you know i think the skill level of our game worldwide is at an all-time high i think basketball iq at least in the united states and competitiveness and no knowing you know coachability and knowing how to deal with adversity is at an all-time low and that's why that's why it's a problem. But yeah, a lot of the coaches at the younger levels, they know all these tricky plays and this and that and how to stack their teams, but they don't know how to teach. And I think that's a huge problem. I think that really needs to be, you know, sort of dealt with at some point, you know, just for the betterment of the game. Yeah, I think it's a balance. Like I said, you want to win, um, but you also want to make sure you're developing and you're churning. You know, the goal for, for, for clubs, at least in Australia, should be you get a kid under 12s and you want to see him progress to each age level with more skill and more development and more more coordination, athleticism, skill, you know, and we don't really see that. We see we see kids moving around a lot, which is a separate issue, but we also see uh, we win at all costs, win at all costs. So hopefully um, those listening, if you are from an association, you know, really instill development and, and new people that are on boards at associations do not incent- over-incentivize results at a young level like if you've got if you're developing two or three great players every year but you're in the middle of the pack i will take that over winning a championship and never developing anyone so food for thought last one craig fire away thanks folks um great to hear about aaron baines in that article a couple of weeks ago so really happy to hear that he's on the mend really good i just wanted to um get your thoughts on actually defining what an mvp is seems to be the perception of what an mvp is these days it's about obviously you know putting up points and everything and we've sort of gone away from actually being the most vocal player to the team. So I wanted to get your both your thoughts on that and whether the Suns and Chris Paul and maybe he's getting um, overlooked with that. Yeah, I think I think maybe Chris Paul is a little bit because they are they are pretty pretty well stacked team. But let's not forget they weren't that team without him. Um, so he's he's done a really a really good job of just instilling you know winning habits there and and keeping them accountable and professional and all that kind of stuff. So. I think an MVP for me is if you take that player away from that team, what do they look like? And that's why I I, I really think Jokic is the MVP this year because I don't think Denver – I don't even know if they're a playing team without him this season, pro. I, I really don't. I, I think they're, <laughs> they're there towards the bottom of the West. The games that they're competing in off his own bat, let's not forget no Murray, no Porter Jr. Take Jokic away from that roster right now. They're – they're down there with Portland, in my opinion. They're down there somewhere. You know, maybe the late, maybe scratched and competing with the Lakers for you know eight, nine, ten. So, I look at removing that that player. Um, now, there are people 
they do get screwed. Chris Paul's one of them because people say oh, he's got Booker, he's got Aiden, he's got a lot of good players that um, he can have a bad game or two and still win. But yeah, you take that player away. The year, the year we went really well with Steph Curry, we won the championship. You take him away from that roster, we're probably a playoff team, but you know, maybe um, we're, we're in the we're, we're in there somewhere, like you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. But he just he jumped us six, seven spots. Like, and and that that's what I look at. Um, do you make other players better around you? So, you know, with with MVPs, I think if these kind of role players that develop into really good players over the course of your years with that team and they get swamped by other teams and paid big contracts, that's a sign of MVP because you're making – and a lot of times those guys get paid and go to another team and they don't live up to the expectations. That's the sign of an MVP because you, you played with this great that has got you paid and you go to another team they're expecting the same thing, but they don't have that MVP next to you. You struggle a little bit, but that's a sign of MVP. He makes everyone better. So I think um, that's what I look at, removing from the team. What does the team look like? Um, I think Denver for me, you know, you could argue Philly as well um, with with Embiid, but, you know, with, with Harden there now, I think they'd still be in the mix for a playoff spot, but that's, that's what I look at, bro. Yeah, you know, Bogues, like, I agree. I agree with every word of that. I think that like, like what does a team look like is definitely worthwhile. Um, you know, as far as how many more wins do you think you're worth? You know, the first idea of that that I got ever with when I analyzed st- some trade stuff when I was in Boston and, you know, in the front office. And I evaluated guys like Larry Bird, who upped his team, you know, as a rookie with basically the same roster. I think he improved the team by like 22 wins. Um, the Jason Kidd trade for Stefan Marbury when like they basically swapped rosters back, you know, in the early two thousands and, you know, New Jersey was struggling with, with Marbury. Phoenix was doing really well with Jason Kidd. They flip flop and, you know, I think New Jersey was in three straight finals starting the next year, you know, that same year they made the trade. So like, I think that like, can you upgrade the winning? Look at LeBron James. Like you could, you could say whatever you want about LeBron James. Imagine he took those awful Cleveland teams to NBA Finals. Now you could say the East was bad or whatever, but like when you could carry a team on their back, Allen Iverson, what he did for Philly that year they made the championship with a bunch of role players, if that, and that that weren't, you know, they got overpaid, just like you said, you know, he took care of them because of the fact that they made a Finals. And I think that that's, that really signifies to me what an MVP is. You're right. Because I don't really know, like, you could say, you know, stats, media, you know, I don't know. But I do think that if I was in a tunnel and if I was in a vacuum and I'm looking at it, I'm, I'm looking exactly what you said. What do you mean to the team? Do you elevate winning? Do you make Do you make that job so much easier for the players around you? You know, and, and I think that that's sort of what I would look at as an MVP for sure. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a, it's a balance. And, and it, look, there are some players that just strictly are playing for numbers and strictly playing for, for the MVP by getting mass numbers. And I don't, I'd, I'd take a, a lesser number guy that's impacting the game more rather than sometimes there's guys that inflate their numbers. You know, you, you're studying them. They, they're always, they won't, they won't give up the, the pass unless they know someone's going to shoot it to get the assist. Now, Chris Paul is notorious, was notorious for that. He's gotten, I think he's gotten much but Yeah, Westbrook too, but, but, but Chris Paul's gotten much better at it because, um, you know, I, I heard stories at New Orleans where he, 
he'd throw it to Pager and Pager didn't shoot it, he'd cuss him out, you know, and he's like, I was half contested. He's like, get it up. If I get it to you, get it up. And because he wanted the assist, right? And and that plays a part as well. So yeah, I think it's a good mix. But yeah, sometimes the numbers can be deceiving, like a Westbrook. Um, and sometimes there's guys that are they're not they're not 30 and 10 at night, but they might be 25 and, and eight, but they have a bigger impact. And defensively, there's a lot they can do defensively. Are they a good teammate in the locker room plays a part as well? Are they are they you know, do they relay what their coach is saying or are they just strictly out there to get numbers? And some of that stuff fans would never have no, any idea about because they're not in the trenches and only the people in the locker room will know about it. But uh, that will wrap up today's session. Appreciate everyone joining us. Decent turnout. And uh, we'll see you all next week.